0: Amen. Our God is an awesome God. Rich Mullins. Appreciate that, Jessica. Good morning. We are in Matthew chapter four, and this is our last sermon before we begin to embark upon the sermon on the mount where Jesus takes the great following that he has that you're going to see that he gains in this text. He takes that following to a hillside and he begins to expound the teachings of the kingdom of of God. And that sermon on the Mount, it's chapters five through seven of the book of Matthew. So we will spend considerable time in it. It's basically teaching people how to think rightly in the kingdom of God, what it is and and, and what you believe and how you act. And Jesus um, gives us a glimpse of what it's like or what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And so in essence, this This teaching will really challenge us and it kind of turns things right side up when you hear the words of Christ. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for a while, you will say, well, I've read the Sermon on the Mount. I know the Sermon on the Mount. I've I've listened to lots of sermons about the Sermon on the Mount. But I guarantee you that you will be challenged by uh, the messages of the Sermon on the Mount that the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind and to your heart what needs to be heard. Because these are very, very profound words that Jesus speaks. They're very, very countercultural. They're very, very radical. And I can promise you as we go through these sermons, you will get to a point where you will be tempted to think that's too radical. Surely God doesn't want me to think like that. Surely he doesn't expect that from me. That's that's how deep and rich the Sermon on the Mount is. And so we'll look at that. In chapters 5 through 7, just solid teaching. And then chapters 8 and 9, Jesus cranks it back up with more miracles. And then about the the middle of the book, there are kind of a mixture between signs and wonders and miracles and then the parables. So we have a mixture between teaching and miracles. And about half or about two-thirds through, ways through the book, uh, Jesus starts setting his focus on the cross. And then it just becomes the rest of the book becomes about the cross and so we'll look at the death of christ and then it ends of course with the resurrection of christ and then the birth of the cross through the great commission so that's that's the book of matthew in a nutshell um, and that's what we have to look forward to today we're going to complete chapter four and these verses i think are kind of like a transition but between what we have learned so far and What we can expect Jesus's ministry to look like, because we really haven't seen it yet. Matthew has been laying the necessary groundwork of revealing to us the credentials that Jesus has to reign and rule as king. We've looked at basically four chapters of credentials, and now Jesus has begun his. Ministry, And so these little verses are kind of a, a snippet, if you will, a preview, if you will, of what we can expect Jesus's ministry to look like. Really, for about 30 years, Jesus stayed in the shadows somewhat. He lived a very common life. Uh, so I guess about as normal a childhood as you could expect under the circumstances. I mean, you know, something special about him. Matthew paints that picture. The Magi come and they worship him. And, and you know, this—he's he's this great person and great things are coming, but they just haven't come yet. They haven't cranked up yet. He lived that kind of normal life and childhood. He pounded nails as a carpenter uh, with his dad and for his dad. And then this divine alarm clock went off when John the Baptist was imprisoned and Jesus saw that as the sign and he launches into his ministry. And so now we get to see what this king is all about. Now we get to see these credentials come in to play and he begins a a very high energy ministry. And I just entitled this, these verses, the king unleashed, because that's what I see. It, It was just inactivity and a big buildup. And now it's nothing but activity. Jesus comes into this ministry in full force and high energy. And it'll be like that really until the very end. And he's he's received his commission to embark on this ministry. And now he is out there and he is beginning to collect around himself or gather around himself True worshipers, those whom he came to redeem. So now we're going to see the king unleashed. Let's read verses 23 through 25 in chapter four. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. In these few verses, Matthew, I think, kind of gives us a little framework or an outline, if you will, of what we can expect in Jesus's ministry. Here's what he did. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's healing. And he's also increasing because the final words show us that the more he speaks and the more he acts, the more people begin to step in line with his ministry. And he's doing this in Galilee. And the idea is this. This is the king's plan. It's the king's plan. He's, he's settled now into his ministry. And his plan is to gather worshipers around him, gather believers, and to redeem the lost. And the way he's going to do this, basically, is through his words and through his works. Very simple plan. Through his words and through his works. So he's going to say things. He's going to speak in such a way that it will set him apart from other speakers, he's going to uh, th- there are extraordinary speakers and he's going to teach in such a way and say things that are extraordinary or extra extraordinary. And then he is going to do things. Now, the world has seen miracles. Uh, they may be rare, but the world has seen that. And there are exceptional people in every generation one way or another. But he's going to be extra Exceptional. So in his words and his works, and they pick up on this because by the time we are finished with these teachings, people will be saying, have you ever, ever in your life heard of anybody speak like this man speaks? And so, yeah, they've heard other preachers, other rabbis, other teachers. They've heard lots of people talk about the kingdom of God, but they've never heard anybody talk about it like this. And so they are astounded just by his teaching. And then at the end of this, you'll see people basically drawing the conclusion. Can man even do these things? I mean, who is this guy? He's healing people with ailments that people have had from birth. Nobody else can do this. Who is this guy? And so he is shocking the world with what he is able to say. He's a step above anything that the world has ever seen or heard. Now, what I want to do... As he as he shocks the world uh, into belief, at least some of them, so to speak, this these words and these works are intended to show his credentials. They're intended to show that he is God's son. He is deity. He he needs to show the world that the world is in unbelief. It's in darkness. And this is the method that he uses. Uh, it's very radical and it is very, very Extraordinary. But before we look at these, I want to to just briefly comment what this is not about when he performs all these healings and he speaks forth these great teachings. It's it's he didn't speak and heal strictly for entertainment purposes. And we see some of this in the church today. We get little glimpses of this in in perhaps different religions. But these miracles are not for him to entertain or astound in the sense that now you're hooked for entertainment. And that's the end of the purpose for it. So he's not just there to entertain, although watching a miracle is certainly entertaining. I mean, um, it's very, very appealing to see these kind of things. Uh, He is not performing miracles just for fun, though I'm sure he takes great delight to come onto earth and to begin his ministry and to be able to express his supernatural powers. So this is a wonderful thing. He takes great delight in it, but he's not just doing this for fun. There's a deeper purpose behind it. Uh, He, he isn't being proud and arrogant with his great powers Um, He's not showing off, showing off usually has the contents or the aroma of some kind of insecurity. And so I need to show everybody what I'm made of so that they'll see it because they're not seeing it naturally. It's not about any kind of arrogance. It's somehow he possesses all the power. He's omnipotent. And yet he manifests it humbly. I mean, it seems impossible To manifest and harness such power so purely and humbly. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And he's not just healing people to make them feel better. Though he is a very compassionate God. And he does delight in bringing goodness and wholeness. But he's not some bleeding heart liberal as we might say today. Some bleeding heart he just can't stand. People suffer to see people suffer. And so he's just going to heal everybody that comes his way so these are things that are a part of it but this is not what is is propelling him forward it's not the main route or the motivation so what are behind all of these wonderful words and wonderful acts it is a testimony or it is to prove his deity he has to show the world who he really is and what he is capable of doing. Otherwise, how will anybody or why would anybody follow him? The world needs to be shocked out of uh, disbelief. But it is all aimed, although it has these results that are wonderful, it is all aimed at, at being a testimony to the deity of Christ. This is all in the Gospels. He's doing it so that you might believe. He's doing it so that you might know That I'm from the father. He has to make that connection there. Just to quote a few scriptures. And there's many, many. John 731. Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So these signs are for the purpose of pointing people to the Christ. They're not an end in and of themselves. Again, in John 10. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. So the, the, what are, what's the purpose for the works? It's so that you will believe that I am from the Father, that I am God, the Son. He goes on to say in John 38, 10, 38, So if I don't do them, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. So that's the purpose for these signs and wonders and these miracles so that we might know God and understand God. Of course, that we would be saved and be worshipers for God. So as fascinating as they are, they're not just for fun or for show. They're to establish the king, the kingdom as a testimony. Christ is deity. He is the savior. He is the Messiah. And through his works and words, he will let the world know that. And he is saying there's more than enough to believe. If I don't do the works of my father, you're released. But if I do them, the, the opposite is true. If I come and I speak in such a way and I do signs and wonders, then your unbelief is is your own condemnation, because I am doing more than enough to open your eyes to who I truly am. And if you still choose to not believe in me it is a, it is a heinous heinous crime to not believe in the deity of Christ i know that we're in the midst of what we talk about cultural degeneration and its post-christian and now post-truth and and we can i can list off all these names of sins that our cultures engaging in perhaps that even we engage in but the most heinous crime is to not believe in the deity of Christ because god has Open the eyes of the world. He has done so much. He has gone way beyond the call of duty to uh, to inspire us, to motivate us, to change us, to believe in um, Christ. That's a display. Heinous, heinous crime. Just simply not to believe in Christ is a heinous sin, though we can list many more. So let's look at this little outline here. First, we see in verse 23 Teaching and preaching. He goes all throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We spent a little time in geography, and we know Galilee now. We know that it's in the north. We know that it's a very populated place because of the travel route, the way of the sea. It's the I-95 or 64, whatever you want it's it's heavily traveled. And so people are coming and going. It's visited. It's also a place that has uh, for great fertile land. They grow a lot of produce there. And of course, you got the sea that isn't a sea. It's a lake. But so there's lots of things for people to do. There's lots of ways for you to scratch out a living in this area. Many, many people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, was also a commanding general in 66 AD of this area of Galilee. And he would know as a commanding general. And he writes in his works, there were 204 villages in Galilee. So lots of people, lots of little towns, lots of little villages. And Jesus is going all throughout this place. He's going from town to town, village to village, people group to people group. And he is proclaiming the kingdom of God throughout that entire region. He's preaching and he's teaching. There's a difference between preaching and teaching. Preaching uh, is more of a proclamation, whereas teaching is more of an explanation of what you are proclaiming. And Jesus is doing both. Um, So you can go and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and you just proclaim the truth. But then somebody might say, but how do you repent and and what is the kingdom of God? And then you would explain that. And that's the teaching part. So there is a difference. But obviously, I think the two go hand in hand when it comes to learning and giving people, leading them into an understanding of what the kingdom of God is. And that's what Jesus is doing. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about the content because we're going to be immersed in the content of this message in the sermon of the Mount but I do want to look at Jesus's method and where he goes to share his message Matthew tells us how he does this and he, and he, I want to draw attention to the fact that he teaches and preaches in their synagogues now he's in Gen he's in Galilee of the Gentiles remember that little slam that was in there um, in Matthew it's Galilee of the Gentiles there's a Jewish population there but the history is that they had backslidden so much and they they, they were intermarriage and so forth. It's even though it's part of the promised land, it's kind of Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, you're not very Jewish. The people there aren't very Jewish. And we know that they're not as traditional and not as conservative up there in the north, the northern parts. But one of the things that makes you Jewish is the synagogues in that day. <clears throat> the synagogues. Were the most important institution of their lives. And it's similar to our church, and I think it should be that way. Really, churches are patterned after the life, the community life of the synagogue. When you think about all the things that are um, hinge around or take place around church life, we gather in our church. We make new friends in our church. We we rejoice over new births in our church. We have baptisms. The, we rejoice over the rebirths in our church. We share good food together. We share burdens together. We cry together. Um, we, we make business connections in church. We Sometimes we talk politics in church, though not so much from the pulpit, but uh, from side to side we talk uh, cultural events in the church i mean most of the important things that happen in our lives you make connections in church and sometimes those connections wind up in a marriage in the church there's love in the church there's romance that takes place great friendships so really our, the church is like the hub of our community life and it was even more so with the synagogues because not only did they share life and do life together But there were little schools there. They had the um, wasn't just a Sabbath worship, but they had like they would teach the kids scriptures there, the boys. And then when they grew to be men, there was it turned into somewhat of a theological education that they got. So there was a school there. But it was also about justice. I mean, their their court system basically was operating from the synagogues because it was the elders that would settle disputes. If you had a dispute there, you didn't. You didn't get served papers and those kind of things. You went to the elders in the synagogue and you you hammered things out that way. Court of law, place of justice. Um, So everything, the politics, the economics. I mean, your business a lot of times would stand or fall based on your relationship to the synagogue. So even more so, it was a central of central importance to their lives. And so when Jesus goes into these places... He is really getting to the heart of the matter. He's speaking. He's he's able to join in the community and speak right to people's hearts. As a matter of fact, if you were kicked out of a synagogue in that day, your, your lives were basically ruined because all of your connections depended on that. In fact, we know, of course, in Acts, what happens when the Jewish people start believing in Christ and they become Jewish Christians. They get kicked. They start kicking them out of synagogues. They start seeing the difference in religions and people's lives. Christians lives are ruined and they're and they're persecuted. They're undone. And part of the reason that the book of Hebrews was written was to encourage these Christians that were getting kicked out of synagogues and getting persecuted for their belief. And then the author comes around and he says things like, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't disband. Don't give up. But let us encourage one another more and all the more as you see the the day approaching. This is important for us to stay together as community. Don't disband. Don't be intimidated. So. Jesus is going to these synagogues. The synagogues, um, it is said that they were usually built in the highest place in that little town or village. So like on a hill And this area is very hilly. Sermon on the Mount. So there are mountains there, which really are kind of like foothills compared to our, the Appalachian Mountains or the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, they had a pole outside, I'm told, of the, the synagogue. So like our churches have a cross, maybe some of them anyway to identify it. they had a spear or a pole out there to identify the local synagogue. And it was in these places, just like churches, that you if you were going to find true worshipers, that's where you're going to find them. Now there are a lot of people there just like today that are at they're gathering for the wrong reasons. They don't get it. It's more about tradition, it's more about religion, it's more about looking good and being very moral, and there are people in churches today that aren't even saved. They're not they don't really have a heart for God. They're zealous for their own self-righteousness. We'll see this in the Pharisees. So there 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 is that group. But they're also just like in churches today. There's the remnant. There are those that really love God. They have a zeal for God. They're hungry for God. They want to learn all they can. And so Jesus is teaching in this kind of atmosphere. The practice in the synagogue. One of the things they would do is they would unroll the scrolls of paper um, of scripture and they would read a portion of scripture. And then if there was a guest there or an important visitor, sometimes they would be invited. Would you like to read some scripture or would you like to expound on the scripture that has just been read? And so Jesus would be invited to speak about the scriptures, their scriptures. You know, in Acts that the apostle Paul took advantage of this as well, because he would go from synagogue to synagogue and he would sit there and probably praying for an opportunity to be called upon. Brother Paul, would you like to share anything here? I mean, this is this was an important person in the Jewish community. Very, very well learned. Would you have anything to say about the scripture? And he'd probably, as a matter of fact, I do. And let me explain to you how this all points to Christ. The Christ that I've been telling you about. Till finally he probably got uninvited to places. So you could take advantage of that, and Jesus is reaching his people. He's reaching the Israelites in the very heart of their community. And he's bringing the truth. He's bringing the truth that will set them free. And that will ease them of their burdens. He's telling them, th- this is how it appears the world works. And I know you have your system and you live in your kingdom. But here's heaven's perspective on how you should be thinking And how you should be living. And he is proclaiming the gospel, which is simply the good news. Says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What's the news of the kingdom? It's good. Boy, do we get our share of bad news these days. And Jesus comes and he says, I have good news for you. What is that good news? There is a kingdom. And I want you to be a part of this kingdom. And it's a good kingdom because God is the, the, the king of this kingdom. I am the king of this kingdom. We are one of the same. And I want you to be a part of it. And it's all good. You know, it's got to be good if God is a part of it. And he's saying this to a generations of people, multitudes of people that are feeling the hurt and the burden of the world, the heaviness it's a heavy place to live in it. Do we ever wake up and just say life is so wonderful? I don't have a care in the world. Is it even possible to wake up without a burden anymore? There's always something looming over us. There's always some kind of brokenness. If it's not in our own heart, something we're facing, a challenge, it's, it's in somebody that, that we love. And Jesus is saying, I have good news. And he's saying it to people that need to hear it. The message of the kingdom, the good news of forgiveness. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. 1. we we say it many times during our communion services. He's talking about the good news. He said, here's the gospel which I preach to you, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And here comes the good news that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried. He rose again to the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. There's a good kingdom and you can be a part of it because Jesus has died for your sins. And all the yucky stuff you've done, he has the power with his royal blood to cover right over it. The things that would keep you out of this good kingdom and away from this good God, he can cover those things. And when you place your faith in him and repent of those things, then you can walk in as a child of God in this kingdom. That is Good news. Just the fact that there really is such a thing of goodness in our cynical, skeptical culture is wonderful news. I mean, people are growing more and more hopeless today. Are they not? Because you you can only be burned so many times by politicians, by not just car salesmen, but by pastors too, and preachers, by priests, clergy. By by places where it's supposed to be safe by your own family can only be burned so many times. We need to be looking outside. We need to be looking somewhere else besides this kingdom. And it's the kingdom that Christ offers to us. And he is beginning to undo the evil. We'll look at that very, very shortly. This kingdom. That we should long for. So he's preaching and teaching. We'll look at more of that in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's also healing. What's he healing? Verse 23. Every disease. Every affliction. His fame is spreading throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Those oppressed by demons. Those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. Now, his teaching in and of itself was so great, he could have drawn crowds without the miracles. John the Baptist did. John the Baptist never performed one sign. It was strictly the proclamation, the preaching, the teaching, of the kingdom of God. And people came in droves, large crowds. They were coming from everywhere, it said. They were following him. Jesus has that, too. He's got the words, but he also has the works. It's a part of the package. It's a, it's a part of his method of ministry. You know, not all people long for spiritual truths. They just soon not hear it. They don't want anything to do with it. But when you mention healing, there's hope that you can be healed from a physical calamity and nothing else has worked. Well, that gets people's attention. Uh, it's, it's a pretty good asset to have if you're a preacher, when you can also heal people of all their sicknesses that will gather a crowd. And Jesus is gathering a crowd. So it's uh, these things are um, pre-kingdom manifestations. That's what really this passage is all about. It gives us a, a preview into what we can expect from Jesus. And all of this ministry is an idea of what the kingdom of God is like. So it points to his deity and it shows us, if you're wondering what the kingdom of God is like, Here's how the king ministers. This is what we can expect. And it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Look at the hope that is being brought into the darkness. Into people's real lives. You mean there, there is hope of being set free from physical calamities. There is hope to, to escape the bondage, the prison that I have put myself in. With my own attitudes and my own inability to do what's right, there's hope for me? Yeah, there's absolutely hope. And so this is a prequel, if you will. It's just, It's a picture. Uh, Alexander McLaren says those early ones are illustrations. It's the nature of the kingdom. Let me show you what it's going to be about. It's a foretaste of it. It's not the whole thing. Well, uh, I think it was just this morning we read in Hebrews 2. And I read a little bit ahead uh, than what we were looking at. But the author of Hebrews says Christ is bringing all things into subjection. That's that's what's happening right now. The kingdom of God is subjecting all things. But he says we don't see it all under subjection yet. No, we don't. That's why there's still so much brokenness and sickness and lostness, because it's not all in subjection yet, but it's coming. And these are. Illustrations, examples of the nature of what the kingdom of God is like. So tastes. Um, Matter of fact, it's Hebrew six that the author says once you've tasted of the goodness of God. That's all there is. There's nothing else that God's not sending anything else. If you have heard the truths and you've seen the works of Christ. Uh, He says, you've tasted the goodness of the word of God in Hebrews six, five and the powers of the age to come. That's what this is. Jesus is saying, let me show you the powers of the age to come so you can get a, a taste. That's what church is. We are a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. That's what it's supposed to be. So that when you come here, you're just tasting the goodness of God. I love the way we opened this morning where we just immediately we launched into um, giving glory to God. We glorify your name. That's what church is for. And I hope that you're tasting. I hope that you're tasting God here at church, that you're seeing how good he is. You're experiencing how good things can be under the grace of God and under the rule of this kingdom. And see that the Lord is good. So, here is what these I want to do: kind of do three and three, three things that the miracles accomplish, and then uh, three examples. But um, first of all, I've already say, I've already said they confirm His deity. Secondly, the purpose of these miracles is also to show that He is the fulfillment of Scripture, as it is written, as it is written. Scripture built the Messiah up. The whole Old Testament, he's coming, he's coming. And when he comes, he's going to do great things. And there's certain things that he's going to do that will cue you in to know that this indeed is the Messiah, the hope of the world that God is sending. And so these miracles, specific miracles that he's performing are fulfillment of Scripture. Perhaps you remember a few chapters ago. Well, actually, we haven't gotten there yet, but I I. I cheated and went ahead a little bit when we were talking about John the Baptist. Um, He's in prison. And, you know, life's not going well for John. He's in prison. He had this great ministry. People come. He's baptized him. And now he's in jail. And he he starts to second-guess himself. Yes, even JB. Starts to second-guess himself. And so he asks one of his buddies, Look, can you go to Jesus, ask him, are you really the Messiah? And so buddy goes and says, Jesus, John, he's kind of bummed out in jail and he's having second thoughts and he just wants to know, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, right? No, he doesn't say, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Yeah, tell him, just tell him, yeah, thumbs, give him a thumbs up. He'll know what it means. No, no, he won't. He says, tell John this. The blind see. The lame walk. The demons are cast out. Why did he use those words? Because he's quoting Isaiah. And that's exactly what's going to happen, God says, when he sends the Messiah into the world. Isaiah 35, 5 through 8. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness the streams in the desert. If you ever wonder where the title of that devotional came, in Isaiah. You see, it, it's, it's specific fulfillment of Scripture. There's nothing random about these miracles that Jesus is doing. Third, they proved the arrival of God's kingdom. It's kind of like, hello, have you ever heard anything like this? Maybe somebody's trying to get your attention. Have you ever seen anybody perform these kind of miracles? Maybe somebody's trying to get your attention. It's definitely a wake-up call that the kingdom of God has arrived in in a way that the world has never seen. And uh, Jesus is casting out demons. He's casting out demons. So it's this obvious sign that, uh uh-oh, the worlds are clashing now. It's kind of like there's not room enough for both of us in this town, and one of us has got to go, Satan, and it's you. And so, when he delivers people from evil spirits, how does he do it? Does he talk them out of it? Does he manipulate them? Does he trick them? Does he throw them a bone? No, it's it's dunamis, it says, the power. He overpowers them. He has more authority than... Than they do. And so the king of all authority in whom all things are subjected to is saying, it's time for you to go. They have to obey his voice. So it's a wake up call. The kingdom is here and you can expect evil and darkness to begin to subside. In favor of the power of good. Uh, To quote B.B. Warfield, a great reformed theologian. He said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory, which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The member, the number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It's been said that in effect, he banished disease and death from Palestine for three years of his ministry. One touch of the hem of his garment that he wore could medicine hold countries of their pain? One, one touch of that pale hand could restore life. So it is a big time wake up call. That, okay, it's begun. It's happening. The Messiah is here. He's, he's gathering citizens of the kingdom. And you're either going to be one or you're going to be left behind. You're either going to be in light. You're going to be in darkness. It started. There's there's no more riding the fence. You either believe or you don't believe. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, right? None of the the, uh, in-between here. The kingdom is here. And it is here in full force and power and there are miracles. And let me just say, I know there's a lot of confusion in today's church about faith healers and miracles and and what it's supposed to look like. And let me just say that when Jesus healed, um, he was a true healer. OK, he, he didn't need anything else to help him perform these miracles. He possessed everything within himself. He didn't need perfect conditions. Wait a minute. Wait till the sun comes out so I can see what I'm doing. He didn't need he didn't need to be surrounded with people that are all of great faith. There were lots of unbelievers right there. He didn't need the perfect conditions. He didn't need actors to help him. Look, I'm going to touch you on the forehead. I need you to lay over and act like you're healed. He didn't need any of that kind of stuff to to manifest his glory. Uh, He didn't need donations, seed money. I get a little bit of miracle for a little bit of money. You give me the big money, I give you the big miracles. He didn't need any of that. He didn't need prayer cloths or oils or mats for people to fall down on. It was the real thing. He was a true healer. They came. They were sick. When they left, they were they were whole. No shenanigans healing every disease, every affliction. No, no drama there. Now, this is a big deal. They they didn't have uh, health clinics in those days, really. They had doctors, but they didn't have health clinics. I mean, this this health care stuff that we're debating today was unheard of in that day. And you you could die of just the easiest thing. Sanitation wasn't one as rampant. The medications that we we can take today, they didn't really exist so much in that day. If you got sick, a lot of times you never made it out of it. And um, plagues were a huge thing because they didn't know how to fight them. You know, today we get plagues and viruses and all these threats. And we're like, "Eh, it's not really that big of a deal, is it? Because they're going to come out with something to fight it. And that day, everything was a big deal. And so here's this guy who's healing things that are a, a big deal. The sickness, these plagues, and death was common in that era. And he heals it all. But what is he healing? Matthew gives us three examples. Diseases and afflictions. And then the, the, uh, the demon possessed as well. So much of the sickness was caused, and we know by reading the Gospels, from demonic oppression. Yes, people can get sick simply from demonic oppression. It's an evil thing. Very rampant in that day. I won't tackle that in detail today. But the way he was able to do this again was overcoming the darkness. He, he basically said, you, it's time for you to go. Demon. And they listened to him. And they went. So he is overcoming evil through this demon possession. Second thing he says uh, that he heals are the seizures. King James Version, I think, calls them lunatics because in that day they believed that the fits or the seizures had something to do with the moon or lunar. And they called them lunatics. Of course, now we know better than that. It has to do with basically seizures. And again, in that day, very rampant today, these things can have to do with the nervous system and they can be. And and brain activity, and they can be overcome with medications. And that day they didn't have that medication. A lot of times if if you were born with something or you you came down with something, you were stuck with that something. And Jesus was able to heal these afflictions in that way. And then paralytics. Also interpreted as palsy, which means crippled, lame. It can also mean uh, deaf Any kind of physical calamity and affliction or physical disorder. He healed them all. And that's the point I want us to see is he healed them all. It didn't matter the condition. It didn't matter if it was physical or spiritual. He healed it. He healed them all. People from different walks of life, different ages, whether they believed in him or not. Some of them were just There for the entertainment or just there for the physical healing. He healed them all. This is the king in the kingdom. There is absolutely nothing that this world can throw at him that he cannot remedy or restore. And then I think that's what Matthew wants us to see. Look, the king is here. There's nothing he can't handle. There's no amount of evil. There's no amount of sickness, even the demonic activity that can put people in bondage. He healed them all. This is the kingdom. This is what it looks like. This is the kingdom unleashed. And this is what we can expect. And of course, the kingdom to come that is now in subjection, but will one day be in complete subjection. None of this stuff that we face today will exist. Because now it's gone in part, but then in whole will we, we will enjoy it when Christ comes the second time i like malachi malachi 4 two, but for you who fear my name the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall so we can get excited about the goodness of the kingdom a lot of times just quickly people say we we wonder i wonder why don't we have as many healings today as they did in scripture uh, that's kind of a, a hard question to answer but The healings did begin to subside. And a lot of it has to do with the purpose of them in the first place. Remember, it's to herald the coming of the king. He's been heralded. So we don't have, we have one presidential inauguration, one big party. We don't have it every day because he's already present, so to speak. And so that was this this big bang that God comes in the world with. And then it begins to subside. We see it even in Acts um, where the Apostle Paul talks about, Erastus in 2 Timothy 4.20, I left Trophimus, who was ill. You know, there was no healing there. There's lots of examples in the New Testament where Paul was around sick people, but you don't hear that they're healed. And so it it started to subside. Now, where we see it mainly today is where the kingdom is being newly introduced. That's where you hear about it all the time in the history of the church, where the kingdom is first introduced God often comes in with a great display of glory and manifestations of miracles. So that's just something to consider. God absolutely still heals today. Absolutely honors prayers and faith. It's not that it is uh, completely subsided, but that's why it's not as popular. And, of course, Jesus is up in heaven. So let's look at these Healing's just to close now. Six things I very quickly will want to clarify about this that I think is important for us to understand so that we can separate maybe any kind of confusion. But um, Jesus healed, not he healed by word. He could heal by word, just by speaking. And he could also heal by touch. It, means that it was that natural and easy for him. He, he doesn't even have to be there in order he, he can say your, your child is healed and that child may be the different location all together. So he can heal by word. He can heal by touch, present or absent. He heals instantaneously. When the person was healed, they were healed completely. It was a quick healing. It wasn't like uh, one dose this week. Next month, you'll feel a little better. The month after that, you'll feel even better. By the end of the year, you'll be able to walk. It was an instantaneous healing. So, uh, the blind man was able to see. The deaf man was able to hear. Third, it was total healing. It wasn't partial healing. He didn't say, be healed, and then one leg worked, but one leg still didn't work. People limped away. Or, hey, I can see out of one eye now. This is great. It was a... Total healing. Fourthly, he healed everybody, it says. He just healed everybody without discrimination, without concern. All manners of illness, saved and unsaved, he healed them. And fifthly, they his healings were observable. In other words, it was obvious this person was sick in this way. And when Jesus healed them, it's obvious that they're healed. It wasn't like, I have this internal pain. I've got, I've got back pain. Uh, Nobody can see it. Jesus heals it. And then they say, uh, now I'm healed. So these were very, very observable. And then lastly, didn't say it here, but we know Jesus also raises people from the dead. And you can't get any more obvious than that if if you're dead and now you are alive. So this is the kingdom unleashed. This is the hope that Jesus brings us, the king. And we want to be challenged by this. Are we are we citizens of this kingdom that he's come to establish? Are we tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? And does Jesus Christ, is he the king of our hearts? Does he reign and rule? Does that is the purpose of his coming that we might become true worshipers? Don't leave here this morning. If you know in your heart that you are not a citizen of the kingdom, you've never surrendered. You've never made Christ your Lord and you're still living on this linear plane or level of just what the world has to offer and you can't break out of it. Surrender your life to Christ. Become a worshiper of God and taste and see that the Lord is good. May God bless the preaching of his word.